Welcome to Functional Design Enclosure. I am Nate Jones. And I'm Christoph Newman. We're here to help you use functional programming and closure to make your everyday life as a developer less frustrating and more fulfilling. That's right. And that is why we are talking about composition. Not not musical composition, functional composition. <laughs> because, hey, this is a functional programming podcast, right? <laughs> We uh, we are composing ourselves. We are trying not to be too excited about composition. Uh, yeah, uh, at least yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll, but, we'll try uh, to remain our composure. <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> compose compose. Was, was there a J in that word? Is there a J in um, composure? <laughs> so uh, last episode we talked about cake a lot. <laughs> I thought it was a baking and, podcast, actually. Yeah. <laughs> It was it was very enjoyable, but it did make me a little hungry. Uh, and so uh, I thought maybe for this episode we would talk about just a little bit of code, you know, because we're we're a programming podcast. We might as well talk about code at least once once an episode. Um, what do you think, Christoph? Does that sound like a good plan? Sure. Yeah. Let, <laughs> let. How about if we make it a little more concrete? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I was, I was like, uh, what, what example can we talk about that's small enough to talk about in the podcast? It's not too abstract. And, uh, it's something that I did recently. I wrote a script in Babashka to, uh, take, uh, take, take data that I was, uh, you know, I could forget it was from rabbit or from, uh, Postgres or something like that, but I wanted to format it and print it out in a way that I could easily scan. And so the way that I do that for myself is I usually um, add color to it uh, because that makes it pop out m- more than just scanning. You know, and this is why tools like Grep or whatever are, are exist. Yeah. What are you, what are you adding color to exactly? Um, well, like a concrete example would be uh, like uh, at, at work we use. Um, RabbitMQ, so there's queues, and we have a, a a script that prints out the queue status, how many messages are in the queue, how many are in process, that kind of thing. And I want to be able to quickly scan the list of queue names and find important ones. And so I have a script that will take that output and it'll actually highlight those those queue names with different colors. And so I can look at the color and and and, and recognize it quickly instead of having to parse each line. Oh yeah, yeah. So how does how does it know what in the data is a queue name? Well, I uh, I, I use a regex. Uh, it's just we our our queue names are named after you know uh, something in, else in the system, and so uh, because they're a regular name, I use a regex to tell the script what to highlight. Oh, okay. So you're taking the output from the log you said, and you're piping mm-hmm. it through a script that uses regexes to identify queue names and then it colors them so that they pop out to you on your terminal screen. There you go. Can't be more concrete than that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Except maybe cement. <laughs> right. So anyway, so I I have a, a function that well, at least the first version of the function, I wrote, you know, I passed it a string and I passed it a color that I wanted it to highlight. And uh, I, I'm I'm a terminal guy, so this is of course in the terminal. And the way that you color a string in the terminal is you 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 emit ANSI escape codes. So it's a, I mean you can go look it up on the internet. I'm not going to try to speak ANSI right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if you put those characters in the string um, and print it out, the terminal magically hides those and makes the makes the string show up in the right color. 
And so the first version of the function was I pass in a string and a color, and it would put the right ANSI codes around it and print it out. And I thought, this is grand. Uh, but then I realized as I continued writing the script that I didn't want to just uh, colorize and print something out. I wanted to colorize other things. And so I needed to decompose that function into two parts because those parts were, I couldn't use it for more than one thing, I guess it's the way of putting it. So getting back to our talk from last week, talked about ingredients, you know. And so in this case, I had, yeah, it's, it's a real kind of hard way to uh, look at it, but it's, it's a somewhat of a box mix, you know. It can do one thing well, but it can do two things well together. Um, but I found I wanted to do those two things separately. And so I had to take them apart and become ingredients. So the parts that I made were one function that takes a string and a color and returns a new string with that, with those escape codes in it. And then the other half of the function is the print lin, but I guess closure already has that function. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I didn't yeah, write yeah. that one. Yeah. And so then later in when I was, when I was using it, I could, I mean, the, the, the kind of the use case for this was I wanted to color two parts of a string before printing it out, like two parts of the same string and a function that takes a string and a color and prints it out. Yeah. I, I can't, I, I need to be able to, to, to do the, the color part twice before I do the print. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And so that's why I took that function apart. So now I have a function that just takes a string and a color and returns a string. Um, and it's a nice side effect that it's a pure function. Right. So it takes a string and a color and it returns a string. It, so it's really a reduction because you take, you take a thing and then some other data and you return a new version of that thing, right? It's a reduction. Right. And so then you, you can begin to apply that reduction multiple times to advance the computation, right? Mm-hmm. And in this case, you're advancing the computation by colorizing one thing and then colorizing a different thing and then colorizing a different thing and then colorizing a different thing. You know, you always end up with a, an instance of the starting thing, whatever the thing is under inspections. So in the end, I had two ingredients. I mean, one was the print lens that Closure gave me. So it was a reusable ingredient. Um, that I could use to then make my my script more. Um, I could I could use it to make my script more useful. Um, and so that's a that's a kind of a, a bit of a concrete example into uh, into what I mean by by things that are more composable. Like you can take the string or the the first function and you can use it multiple times. But if there's a println in that, you can't. You can only use it one way. So it makes that way really easy. Just like the box mix makes it really easy to make a cake. But it also constricts your uh, ability to do more things with it, right? Because it's it's not just colorizing; it's it's doing I/O, right? It's it's doing right. two two orthogonal concerns wrapped up in the same function, and so you're separating those out. You're separating out the what? How how do I communicate, emit, transmit, record, whatever? the output of this from what the actual computation is. Exactly. And I think, I think a lot of times we like to keep things separate, take the IO separate from the pure functions. And this is an example of why, I mean, it's a very small constricted example, but it, I do believe it scales up to bigger things 
is that why why it's advantageous to keep you know pure functions separate from I/O functions uh, because it, I think it's easier to keep to keep them more composable. Right. Any any by definition, any side effect is an orthogonal concern. Uh, exactly. Right? So if you call a function that does any computation other than the side effect, then now now that function has uh, sort of two concerns. It has the concern, its primary concern, and then it has its side effect concern, right? Its secondary concern. Or maybe maybe the side effect is its primary concern. So I've written, you know, many, many times a function that really was just for I.O. And then I realized I needed to do some work on the data to get it ready for the I.O. And then that sure. work that I do on the data found itself in the I.O. function Right. So the primary concern was the I.O. And then the secondary concern was the getting the data formatted and packed and et cetera, the right way prior to the I.O. But it's still co- two concerns, right? So there, it's screaming for decomposition. Mm-hmm. And, and then using something like threading, you can have a function that preps the data, it packs the data. Maybe it maybe it takes your. I've been doing a lot of work recently with byte buffers and mm-hmm. binary network protocols that are defined in RFCs, <laughs> right? And they actually have little diagrams to show you how many bits are part of each little <laughs> bit of data. Each byte of data. Yeah, yeah. And so I have to take a let's let's call it a useful data structure, like a map or record. <laughs> Right. And turn it into a sequence of bits, really, that are packed into bytes, into a byte buffer, which then are transmitted via UDP. And so that packing function, that's, that's the, the prep step. And so if I can just have the, what do I do with this, this byte buffer now that I have it be a separate concern, I can do all kinds of, you know, actually, is it not only can I, I have all kinds of unit tests right. that test all these different information scenarios against an honest-to-goodness, you know, byte buffer, go, hey, this should have emitted this sequence of bytes that look like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and it lets you, it all, I mean, one, one, one real nice side effect is that, <laughs> is that you can write a bunch of unit tests around the code that constructs those byte buffers and that, that makes them, and then you can, you can run all those tests very quickly because all they're doing is creating and manipulating things in memory. They're not actually like you could the way you could test this, you know, if you didn't take th- take things apart, you could set up another socket that every time you wrote the byte buffer, it sent it to the other socket and then you had a listener and, and it pulled it off. Like, so it's possible to do it with the IO in there. But if you separate that concern out, then you can just test that. And it also makes it for makes your iteration faster and makes your test simpler, I think. Right. And interestingly enough, I'm trying a n- new and different serialization library enclosure and it sort of it has uh side effects to some extent built in <laughs> because it really wants these uh byte buffers that are it, byte buffers like an abstraction right and so right. the w- the way you make it side effect free is you basically create an in memory file handle type thing and in memory instead of instead of this being a stream an io stream that actually goes out to the disk or goes out to the network you're reading and writing from an in memory io stream so that is 
kind of funny. Like, but I understand why they did it that way because the Java, the Java underlayer has this byte buffer as this unifying abstraction across in memory things, on disk mm. things, on network things. And, and rather than creating another abstraction for holding all the, the particulars and then mm-hmm. having to turn it into Java's preferred way, they, they get a performance benefit by going along with Java's preferred way, given the caveat that if you want to do unit tests and things like that, then you're using an in-memory it's a, a not a mapped buffer. It's not mapped to the file system or mapped to the network uh, right. network card. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a way of removing the side effect in a way because it still has an IO side effect, but it has an IO side effect on a private buffer in memory. So it's still isolated, even though it's technically a side effect. Right. Yeah. So I yeah, faking that uh, that I/O side of it. We've talked about that in past episodes, right? Um, the idea of, of it's not mocking, but it's more like making a a, a, a version of that I/O thing that is easy to create and dispense with. Um, so yeah, so I think that it really so separating these out makes it so that it's easier to understand each part by itself, and you can uh, you can you can try out different implementations. Um, and so I think that, I mean, I, I think that that does a good job of covering some actual code. <laughs> we, uh, we have our actual code badge again as a, as a programming podcast. So what do you think? Is that enough for a composition for the week? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and that idea of a reducer that you were saying, mm. you know, it's like that reducer is advancing the computation and then the idea of the the IO parts. Those that's a natural point of separation. Yeah. Cool. Well then, um I think that's enough for this week. Uh we should uh we should talk about c- composition some more, hopefully. So if you as our audience, uh, uh thank you for listening. If you have any questions for us or you would like us to talk about something, please reach out. We would love to hear from you. Every email, every message we get in Slack is uh treasured uh, communication and we uh, we we will definitely respond so you can send us a tweet at closure design or uh, x whatever uh, or feedback to sorry an email to feedback at closure design.club uh, or our favorite place is on the closure in slack we have a slack channel there called closure design dash podcast and uh, we look forward to hearing from you that's right and you can find us on the web at closuredesign.club and you can find our archive of episodes there as well as little blurbs of our summaries of the episode and we have them organized by topic if you uh, want to go on a topic binge too cool thank you Christoph alright we'll be back next week thank you for listening thank you.